Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. I'm Anne Morrison. I'm director of the BBC Academy, which is um, a fancy way of saying that I run training and development here at the BBC. And um, we are hosting this uh, Thought for the Day breakfast jointly with Editorial Intelligence. Um, It's part of our College of Journalism Art of the Interview uh, season, and it's the latest in the series of um, Thought for the Day breakfasts run by Editorial Intelligence, which have really built up a reputation for being stimulating and thought-provoking and entertaining, and I'm sure today's will be no exception to that. Uh, We're delighted to have such a distinguished panel here uh, today. So uh, without more ado, I'm going to hand over to the moderator um, for the day who describes himself as a communications consultant and a recovering journalist, (laughs) Charlie Burgess. Hello, that always gets a good uh, laugh. Uh, Thanks very much for coming along today. Uh, I'm very excited about uh, our breakfast this morning, uh, the subject being the art of the interview, and I feel I'm in the company of giants here today because we have some of the three, three of the people who are probably best known in the country for being uh, interviewers. Uh, I should say that we are being podcast, uh, we are being filmed, recorded, so if you don't want to know the result, please look away now. Uh, And also, if you fancy Twittering, uh, the hashtag is EIClub. We've got three fantastic guests here, uh, and I will just do short uh, um, introductions. We have... Camilla Long, who's the chief interviewer of the Sunday Times. She worked at Vogue and Tatler before becoming the chief interviewer at uh, the Sunday Times in 2009. Uh, Last Sunday, she interviewed uh, a Lib Dem MP who outed Ryan Giggs, and during the course of the interview, uh, the MP asked Camilla if she'd like to be his mistress number 27. (laughs) <laughs> I thought that was pretty interesting. She said no. She said no. Next on, we have Mark Lawson, who has been a journalist as long as I have. Uh, uh, he's been on The Guardian and The Independent. He's a Guardian columnist, and he runs uh, Front Row, the BBC art show. Uh, and when, if you ever see that or listen to that show, it is a fantastic amount of stuff in it. It's highbrow, lowbrow, every brow you could possibly mention, and Mark does it all. This week, he and uh, Julian Barnes were discussing some tennis balls in an art exhibition in Birmingham, which were covered with a man's hair uh, through his 20 years of life, so they've gone from black to grey. And on my left, we have Libby Purvis, who really does need no introduction. She has been an author, broadcaster, journalist uh, for many years. Uh, she is the theatre critic of The Times. She is a columnist on the Monday morning of The Times, a breath of fresh air every Monday. And she also uh, pr- uh, presents midweek. She was the uh, first female presenter of the Today programme, so she knows about inquisiting. And uh, she writes books as well. So we have three people who are going to talk about uh, what they do, and I'd like to start with Camilla. How do you do it? Well, it's funny you should mention the John Hemming interview because, um, obviously, uh, I was there to talk to him about Ryan Giggs, so we spent 
30 seconds on that before I got into the nuts and bolts of having had 26 mistresses. And uh, so I just... <laughs> quite interested how it worked. And so I asked them a lot of questions about, you know, how do they live in different houses, apparently two separate houses, you know, how do you keep them in sort of handbags, you know, do you get exhausted? <laughs> what do you mean, he said. And then he sort of got exasperated and turned to me and said, you know, honestly, dear, dear. When I asked him what his favourite was, he said, dear, dear, you know, your questions will cause the maximum possible stress for me. And I thought, well, maybe that's the art of interviewing. Perhaps that's what, you know, this is all about. And obviously that's quite sort of... Uh, maybe unfair on him, but he was a fantastic interviewer. He, he was sort of unshockable, um, sort of wonderfully self-promoting and happy to answer pretty much every question, although he didn't tell me which one his favourite was in the end. Um, and he's so different from a lot of interviews I do these days. I mean, long gone are the sort of halcyon moments where you'd have a long, sort of boozy lunch and scribble quotes on the back of a napkin. You've got basically sort of junket-ized type of scenario where you have uh, mega-celebrities and you've got, if you're lucky, an hour in a hotel suite and, uh, you know, a sort of fabulously media-trained celebrity who doesn't want to talk about anything apart from the bottle of champagne they're promoting at that particular point. And I've had a lot of those. Um, uh, Scarlett Johansson, for example, we had to sort of talk for 40 minutes about Moet because she was the face of Moet. She wouldn't answer anything about her private life. Um, and it also has got to the extent where I have been in interviews where um, you'll be doing the interview and sort of Elle McPherson turned to me at one point and sort of said, you know, you do know this is, this is all going to be copy approved, uh, so I just want you to be aware of that before you write anything. Um, it wasn't copy approved, and obviously the quote formed the shining backbone of the final piece. Um, so... I think these days technique is absolutely everything. Um, you've got people who are very media savvy if you're talking to them and uh, you need to be really fully prepared um, quite aside from anything else. If you don't do your research properly and they've said something that they repeat in an interview last week then you need to move it on and need to speak about something different. I think it's important to be aware of the news cycle when you're doing a celebrity or a big interview. Um, I feel always a little bit disappointed if I don't come away with a really good line, uh, which sounds very sort of carnivorous and journalistic, but I do think it's a hugely important part. Um, so research is very important. Um, I think also, I mean, trying to get good access. Again, you've got the hotel suite kind of scenario, which is very sterile. It's almost impossible to tell, you know, what their real lives are like. I was very lucky last year to spend 24 hours with Simon Cowell um, in a not his own home, which would have been amazing, but in a sort of re hilarious sort of TV set rented villa in Spain, um, which was probably more sort of <laughs> symbolic of Simon Cowell than his actual home. Um, so that was, that was amazing access, and I got a really good idea of what his world is like, the people around him, you know, who he, uh, what he spends all his time thinking about. Um, and so, you know, trying to push for access again is another thing that I would, uh, you know, think is, is another just needs to be looked at and continued to sort of pushed for. Um, and I think also, as sort of celebrities and you know, journalists kind of are demarcating the rules of engagement at the moment, um, it's important to kind of 
sort of think about how we use the interview as a golden opportunity to get uh, sort of get into the lives of people who are sort of consistently more and more running away uh, running away from the press. And obviously, privacy is a big discussion point at the moment. I sort of do feel if you've given if you've agreed to give an hour's interview to somebody, then you should be pretty open to having <laughs> pretty much any questions asked. I think it's, you know, if somebody has agreed to give you an interview about a book, I think it is courteous to, and a good kicking-off point to discuss the book or the film or whatever. But I think if, you know, you've agreed to let a journalist speak to you for an hour, you should probably <laughs> be happy to ask the question about, I don't know, you know, whether you've taken drugs or, you know, if you're, I don't know, one of my interviewees, I had to ask, you know, you ended up picking up, you're married and an MEP, why did you pick up the girl in the pub in Biggin Hill? Um, so, you know, <laughs> you know, there's always the question, and I think uh, that's the biggest sort of nightmare when you're trying to, when you're doing an interview, is that you know there's always the question that you have to ask, and the question that they inevitably won't want to answer. <coughs> Interviews are incredibly artificial situations, it's forced hour of conversation which you would never experience anywhere else in life and uh, so in sort of calming down your subjects trying to make, relax yourself is really the most important thing so I think that I've probably spoken enough now but uh, <laughs> yes. I'm not used to speaking I try and let them do the speaking um, um, I, oh yes and the worst thing is if somebody is uh, Talking. This is a classic interview technique thing. Is just to stop talking and let and listen to what they're saying. The number of times I've listened back to my tapes, and they've been sort of saying yes. And when I killed a man, and I go, oh my god, I did that as well. And <laughs> and you just <laughs> and you just think, shut up. It's their story. Remember to keep. And I think that you know, with practice, you get better and better at that. Um, so I mean, I think you know. I suppose, in conclusion, what I'd like to say is I think that as celebrities try and control <coughs> interviews more and more, um, I'd really love it if journalists could use all their wiles to get fresher, you know, sort of interview subjects and material um, and keep sort of that alive um, and not sort of bow down to that, OK, you've got 15 minutes in the back of a car kind of thing. I spend my entire life trying to sort of, you know, get something original, get something fresh and get something different. And I hasten to add, this is all to do with writing because I've had very limited experience doing TV or radio. Fascinating. Before we move on to Mark, do you, do you have a big question in your head that you're just working towards? Always, as you, always so you have one in your pouring head you... sweat about the question, and it's the timing as well. I mean, I sort of Ask it last, then, do you normally? Know I mean? Ask it last. Sometimes they really want to talk about it. I think if there's been a big scandal and, you know... They know that you want to talk about it. I think then sometimes they'll, you know, sort of totally open up quite quickly, and you can usually tell. And then there are some brilliant interviewees who will simply answer any question going. I mean, I ran out of questions with Jordan because... <laughs> I mean, that is a problem. Sometimes you get... And you realise, oh, my God, I could literally ask you anything. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And now we move from, uh, from print into uh, broadcasting. Mark. <coughs> yeah, well, I have, I've also done quite a lot of print in the past, and yeah. I feel a great envy of Camilla saying an hour, because um, I, it was a great shock to me when I started doing interviews for radio in particular and TV that 
the basic slot for interviewing a celebrity is four minutes. I mean, that's what you're given. And you negotiate up from that, or you simply won't leave the room. Um, and it's a terrible <clears throat> tension, because that is what you normally get. I mean, I did Nicole Kidman for radio last year, and they gave us five, which they thought was incredibly generous. And there's somebody sitting in the room, <clears throat> timing it and <clears throat> excuse me, timing it and counting it. And they hold up, and you're tempted to give it back when they do that one, because that means, <laughs> that means one minute to go. And then they do that one, which is half a minute, and then they do that. And it's, um, so that's one of the constraints you have to deal with, and that's quite terrifying. Um, I, I mean, I don't want to depress anyone, but I always think that, and I've come to this view over 20 years, I think basically all interviews fail. I mean, I certainly include my own in this, fail in some way. I think it's the form of journalism that is most likely to fail. Uh, for a lot of the reasons Camilla mentions, which are <clears throat> the access and restraints. You see, at a simple level, if you're commissioned by a newspaper editor or a television commissioning editor to write a piece or make a film about Manchester United, a documentary, and they won't cooperate, you can still do it, and actually you can do it incredibly well, and you can talk to other people, and you can use archive. But at the most simple level, if Alex Ferguson won't talk to you, as the BBC has known for 10 years now, and he, he actually is not talking to Sky either at the moment, I think, after what happened the other day. If they will not talk to you, there's nothing you can do. Um, there's no other way of doing an interview with Ryan Giggs than Ryan Giggs talking to you. And so it's, I think most like to fail for that reason. Um, and there are two questions that... I mean, I've often... Uh, I mean, I sometimes think seriously about giving it up because of two questions. One of them is, what were they really like? Um, which it's amazing to me that interviews, in, interviewers don't kill more people uh, <clears throat> because once I spent 20, I mean, literally 20 years negotiating with John McCarray to do an interview and he finally did it and we did it on radio and TV together and it, it went out an hour on TV and then three half hours on radio and then <clears throat> somebody came up to me in the street outside here and said, oh, I heard your interviews with John McCarray on the radio and I saw the one on TV What's he really like? And, <laughs> um, and it's amazing the number of people who say that. But I think it's quite revealing because... Um, and it's not a stupid question because it's an acknowledgement of how artificial the whole thing is. Um, and then the other one, and I think this is different uh, because you are on the whole interviewing people in the news. And so, but the other one now, and I think a lot of people, particularly in broadcasting, talk about this, actually people do in newspapers, is <clears throat> did they say anything? And routinely now, if you interview anyone, you'll be phoned up by the news desk or BBC online, and they say, did they say anything? But <laughs> <laughs> the definition of what anything is is astonishingly narrow. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I, I interviewed Philip Roth, which again took about 15 years to negotiate, um, and we got an hour and a half with him, and it was, you know, I, it was interesting stuff if you're interested in Philip Roth. Um, but the definition, there was nothing, he didn't say anything, because he hadn't, uh, he hadn't said anything about J.K. Rowling or the Harry Potter books. If he'd slammed J.K. Rowling <coughs> and said that Harry Potter was terrible, uh, there would have been a news line out of it. And I think it's really... It's very worrying, this, the desperation to get a news line out of every single interview that is done. Um, I mean, this, this morning, looking at the papers this morning, there's um, headlines saying, Stephen Fry, I may kill myself. And <clears throat> the may is quite long-term when you look at it, the quote, um, <laughs> and terribly hedged round. 
Um, and he said it in every interview, including several I've done with him, that you have to accept that if you're bipolar, that that is a possibility and it's something you fight against. But it's reduced in this morning's newspapers to I may kill myself, <laughs> as if, like, you know, by the time we come out of here, it might have <coughs> actually Anybody happened. Have got Stephen Fry's Twitter? Is it still, is it still operating? <laughs> and so that... Um, and I think that's really worrying, because what happens is that... And I've talked to lots of journalists about this. You suddenly have a feeling your interview has failed because there's not a, sim a sing simple line out of it for the news desk. And I spent a lot of time... I mean, I'm, not, I'm not depressive, actually, but I, mean, I sound as if I'm depressed all the time. But um, I do these interviews with people who are quite important in the arts, and suddenly, at some level, you think, I oh, know that's failed because there's nothing for news online to take from it. And I think you have to be really careful because... If that becomes the criterion, what is the news line out of this, <clears throat> then there are huge numbers of people who you would never, ever interview. Um, <clears throat> because what they have to say is fascinating. Uh, and I say this is very different if you are interviewing people in the news. Um, but uh, they have fascinating things to say about ballet or novels or whatever. Um, and somehow it's they don't matter because they're not... And you get into these mad situations where you interview an actor who's in a show about, teach, about schools and you ask them what they think of government education policy and as you do it, you think, this is mad. I mean, who cares what this person <laughs> thinks about <coughs> government <laughs> education policy? They're an actor playing a teacher and last week they're playing a policeman and next week they'll be playing a serial killer. But, um, but you, you, I have to really... I find myself fighting that. You find yourself asking that because you know that they will actually take the line of actor just out of RADA doesn't think government education policy um, is very good. And that is seen as a news um, line. So that's, anyway, you see, that's my thought for the day. So that's, um, that worries me. And I think the, you know, Camilla said most of the reasons why I think most interviews are doomed to fail. It's the time restraint is the basic thing, not just these eight-minute or four-minute windows, but... Um, I've always been interested in this because the number of broadcast interviewers who get accused of being rude or interrupting all the time, and in some cases it's personality, but in most cases it is simply the time restraint. The politicians in particular know perfectly well that they can just run the clock down, and if they can survive for eight to ten minutes um, without saying anything, and so you have to interrupt. So I'm incredibly sympathetic to most broadcasters who are accused of that, um, and the only way round that, actually, and <clears throat> it's difficult because there's a great pressure to be live in broadcasting, the only way round that is to pre-record. Um, most of the really big interviews for Front Row I would always pre-record because when they do the 20 minutes at the beginning um, about their new film and how their co-star was the most challenging person they've ever met, um, we just cut it all out and then just go to the bit where the real interview starts. Um, so I think that's... <laughs> so time is the big thing. And then there always is an agenda. They're always trying to sell you something. Um, as Camilla said, they're trying either to sell you a book or a film at the basic level or a political campaign or simply themselves, a version of themselves. And so you're always trying to go around that. And you have this... You know, the other issue that's arisen uh, recently, and it is a, I think it's a very serious one for journalism, is if you know or think you know that someone's got an anonymity injunction... Um, should you interview them about something else? I'm, I'm like, can't say, because this is public, so I can't say who, but um, I mean, I'm agonising about this at the moment because I'm due to interview someone who has got one. And <coughs> Haven't we all got one? Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm very uneasy about that because you, they would tell, you know, we can now say this Ryan Giggs has been named by your um, 
27,000 yes, or whatever yeah. it was. But, the um, least prejudiced yes, person to do That's right, it. exactly. <laughs> um, well, I'm going to give you the one. Yes, OK, yeah. and I'll give it to you yeah. as well. Um, they, um, <laughs> professional, it seems yeah. well. <laughs> uh, But there were terrible games going on during that period where most people knew it was Ryan Giggs. I mean, Gary Neville did something that I think there should be an entire conference on in the BBC editorial. He's being interviewed on Five Live about Ryan Giggs and <clears throat> in the interim period where we didn't know. And he said, oh, I think he should be an ex-Manchester United um, manager because of his character. He's a man of absolute integrity. And that was a cynical game that was being played where the interviewee knew that the interviewer could not come in and say, come off it. He's got an anonymity injunction because they can't. And if those sort of games are going on... I mean, my pers this is just for me personally. I would really worry about someone being allowed to plug their next film <coughs> or TV series on the BBC if they're going to such huge legal lengths to protect their private life. I, th I, I think, I think, that if you're doing that, you don't then have the right to um, plug your wares, but I say that's just my view. But I think the BBC is going to have to take a line on that because it's, um, it's a very uneasy situation. Well, that's a pretty depressing view there, Mark. But, but just one thing for you. I mean, when you're interviewing on Front Row, which is basically about art and people, you know, mostly having a nice time, do you not feel some, sometimes uplifted by the fact that people are doing these extraordinary things? In the... <coughs> oh, yeah, very often. But I, um, I have the opposite pressure, really, which is to the assumption that it's going to be warm and friendly um, all the time. I mean, I had a... a well, some people say a bad time with, with, with Russell Crowe. I mean, I thought it was a good interview myself because he got angry, and some people do. Um, what worries me in broadcasting is what I call the thermostat school of producing, which is that um, there's an obsession with how warm it is. And actually, I was doing a TV interview the other day, and in one of the filming breaks, the producer said, um, could you get it a bit warmer in the, um, <laughs> in the next bit? And... Um, and so it is, you know, thermostat producing. But I don't, um, and I question that, because I don't think all interviews should be warm. I think, um, you know, I did Ranulph Fiennes for TV, who is um, an astonishing man, but, um, he ju you know, he's pretty chilly and pretty um, frightening, and I think that should come across. And so when they're saying, could you warm him up a bit, um, I think you're actually falsifying... Uh, the character of that person. And very quickly, yes, yeah, say there is an assumption it will be warm, uh, particularly arts ones, but I think... Um, I mean, I differ slightly because it's a different context on the, person, uh, the personal stuff. I think if someone has written a novel that is about um, adultery or sex or whatever, I think you can go into those um, areas. Uh, in general, um, you would tend not to, but, uh, you know, say it's a different area. Well, thanks for that. <laughs> I, should, I should say that my interviewing career uh, started and ended about... 25 years ago when I interviewed an Everton manager when I was on the local paper and got permission to take him for lunch. He said, is the paper paying for this? And I said, yes. So he ordered lobster and a very expensive bottle of wine. I then asked him, well, so what about the dressing room unrest then, Billy? And he said, I'm not talking to you about that. If you think you're going to get anything out of me, you for forget it. So I went back to the office and, the, and the, all I got out of it was a headline that said, Billy Bingham remained defiantly tight-lipped last night as rumours spread, spread throughout the city that his club was in trouble. Anyway, um, let's move on to someone who's much more successful at it than, than I could ever have been. Uh, Libby. 
Yeah, it's, it's been fascinating. It's, by the way, I'm not tweeting. It's just I do. I've always liked to have notes. It's one of the things I have notes in front of me all the time during midweek, and I then don't look at them. I completely depart from them, but I like to have them. And my printer was broken. Um, it, it is fascinating the the contrast because, of course, what I I've done I've done the news stuff on today and so on, and in fact, more recently on the education program, where you're just looking to get facts and statements and technical explanations out of people as tidily as possible. And that's different. Uh, what I do now is different from either of the other two because it's, it's the short-form live radio interview. It's kind of the opposite of Camilla because we give them ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> We're limiting them <laughs> rather than the other way around. And um, we don't pre-record except uh, usually one at Christmas and then you only ever snip out a couple of minutes of uh, more embarrassing stupidities of your own. Um, uh, so really it's live and it's there and it's, a, it's sort of therefore it's kind of a different form and it's also it belongs in what you might call the feature zone in that you're looking for flavour you're looking for the recounting of personal experience or of expertise you're still challenging people a bit if they're not giving you that <clears throat> but it's not a sort of newsy challenge and you are it is important to make people feel safe um, and curiously, they often feel safer when it is live because nobody is going to chop them up and take out the news line because that's not how it works. I've done some newspaper long-form interviews as well and I always feel a bit uncomfortable at the fact that I'm picking the juicy bits. But when it's live, there is a kind of safety about it and that can actually create a kind of warmth and warmth makes people feel safer and therefore they sometimes, as it were, give away. And I don't mean in a nasty sense, but they give away, they give out more of themselves than otherwise. See, Ran Fine sitting around a table with three other people with us, he did warm up. He was funny. You have to kind of get at the bit of him which is funny. But I can see that on television, feeling on the record, serious Mark Lawson interview, he would be different. Um, I always think there are three rules for people doing the kind of thing I do or starting out doing the kind of thing I do. One is listen to the answers, even if you think that you've done all the research and you know what the answer is, they may well head off down some other track where you must follow them quietly, like Camilla, kind of not saying much, you know, but just, good heavens, what is he going to tell me now? You know, that isn't in any of the other interviews. You're not looking for the news line, but if it starts to come, fine. So you listen to the answers. The second thing is it's not about you. Um, I feel very strongly about this. Obviously, some young interviewers will grow up to be Graham Norton or to be Jonathan Ross, and it's all about them and its personality. It's a kind of Mrs. Merton-style comic act. That's what it is. The terrible danger is that people think, well, they are the successful and rich ones, therefore I must behave like that, therefore I must ask clever, larky-sarky questions. And that is not how you get stuff out of people. You know, if somebody sits in front of you, sort of basically saying, I'm cleverer than you and I know more and I've got control of the microphone, you don't want to tell them anything. You know, you want to say, yeah, I did, sort of, yeah, whatever. And quite a lot of the people I interview are not celebs. They're very interesting, but they are not experienced media stuff. And they will be sort of put off by over-cleverness. And the same with the highbrow interview, the prolonged, endless question which shows how clever you are and how, of course, as a matter of fact, well, because as many people would say and indeed have said, and indeed Salman Rushdie last week said on this very programme to me, you know, yeah, oh, for God's sake, shut up. Ask the question. Listen to Eddie Mayer. Listen to Jenny Murray. Listen to that lapidary sort of sort of clarity of question. And sometimes you have to ask a question which does not make you look good. It makes you look a bit stupid, but it's going to get a great answer. 
and the only judge of a question is the answer. Now, Camilla, doing stuff for newspapers, you can behave as much like, I don't know how you are in an interview, but you could be as much of a tit as you like, and nobody will yes. ever know. <laughs> and you can do the, oh, I did that too. Oh, my God, me too. You know, you can get anything out I'll of people radio, if they no. think they're mirroring. <laughs> you do that on the radio, and it's, whoa, you know, <laughs> you think you are, you know. Even on Five Live, you don't do that. Um, <laughs> certainly not when it's live. Um, though I'm sure Mark Lawson, you're on recorded ones, you can sort of say, oh, yeah, I've had hair trouble too. You know? <laughs> um, so those are the things. And the third, the, <laughs> the third thing... He's, he's <laughs> professional. Um, the, the third thing is um, that uh, some things are none of our business. Um, they really are not. I think it is interesting <clears throat> to listen to the wise words of Homer Simpson, who said... Um, uh, lapidary phrases said, look, if these people didn't want guys going through their dustbins and saying they're gay, they shouldn't have tried to express themselves creatively. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think that actors and, you know, that they, that if they draw a line, absolutely draw a line around an area of private life, fine. The interesting thing, though, is that very often something is kind of relevant, as you said, the adultery novel, you know, and that you can sort of go that. Sometimes people will come at the very personal stuff, and it might not be guilty stuff, it might just be sort of poignant stuff. They will come at it a bit obliquely, um, and they will suddenly open a tiny little crack of possibility. Um, I wouldn't have dreamed of asking David Attenborough about how his life had been since his wife died. It was a very long... Everybody knew that it was a wrenching and terrible tragedy. But when he was on midweek, we were talking about wildlife, and I just said... Casual, what does wildlife make you happy? And he said, I don't know the word, I don't know the word. And I said, well, is it consoling? Because that was something I'd felt myself in, in bad times. And he suddenly said yes, and he talked very beautifully. He didn't mention his wife. Anyone who knew his wife, I would say, but he said, in times of great personal trouble, yes, to see the geese flying. And that was a sort of, it was a magical sort of heart-stopping moment. But I wouldn't have pushed any further for that. Um, another interesting one is Patrick Stewart, who has mentioned his violent father because he, he, um, he, he works partly with a domestic abuse charity. And so that was kind of a half-open door. But again, he'd, had, he'd been through that. I didn't see that it was my job to ask how violent was your father. You know, let's have a bit more of that now, you know, not in a ten-minute interview. Um, but then he started talking about how difficult he'd always found it to express rage and evil in acting parts. And... So then I mentioned the thing. I said, well, you have talked in the past about a violent father. Has that been something you've used? And he suddenly gave a very good, full, touching answer to that. So you sort of push a bit, you know, and, and that's it. But as to the, the business of injunctions, I find that is fascinating. Um, we've lately had a senior interviewer in this very building <laughs> who had one out, which I find the most uncomfortable thing to come to terms with. You know, really. I mean, he, he then outed himself and the whole thing became a bit chaotic. Um, but uh, I, if I was talking to the actor who we're all talking about yeah. without mentioning his name at he all... He was on Five Live last week for an hour, actually. I'm, I'm sure, very, very often... I would say, if I knew there was the injunction out, I would actually prefer he wasn't on the programme. Oh, no, and I would say, look, look, let's just draw a line around that. And apart from anything else, that enables them to realise their publicity may slightly go down in good areas if they refuse to, you know, to... The complication like is, you see, there is... Because <coughs> of the, you know, famously the terms are misused. You see, the anonymity injunction we know pretty much 
<clears throat> but you see, there may well be people interviewing who've got a, an actual superinjunction and we have no idea. Had one on midweek recently, gave him a very benign and amusing <laughs> interview, and later on, yeah. my brother, who is on pot bitch the entire bloody time... <laughs> uh, <laughs> everybody needs a brother on the internet, trust me. Um, he said, oh, did you know what he did... and, and yeah. so on. And I was absolutely bloody furious, because yeah. actually one of the questions I'd asked sort of made him sound rather cosy in that particular area of his life and I was not happy so yeah that that's difficult um that's sort of the, the pure pure dishonesty thing but on the other hand if it had been public if it had been gossiped about and written about I probably wouldn't have asked him about it you know because well, actually, because we wouldn't have probably had room you can't, you know? though, can you I mean, that's the problem we've got. Well, can't ask people personal questions. Well, no, but you can't. I mean, if, if we were interviewing this actor, we can't refer to the rumours that he's got this no. super injunction. I mean, the, it's no, not no, but if he hadn't got, What I'm saying is if he hadn't right. got the super injunction, I would probably let it pass. Yeah. You know, on, on a programme like mine, I, I probably wouldn't, wouldn't have bothered with it because it wasn't that relevant to what <coughs> we were talking about. I think that's where, if you're, if you're writing an interview, you're at a total advantage. As I was talking about the same actor with a friend last week who was possibly <laughs> going to have time with him. And I, we were just debating whether you asked the question. And I said, you know, you couldn't possibly really do that on radio or television because uh, it would... Goodness knows. Yeah. I mean, well, um, but... If you're, in a, if you're then writing it up, you can say, well, what about the injunction and see what he says and sort of take it from there. So I think that it, there is a, I have a different attitude towards it. Interesting what you were saying earlier about the business of the, well, the, should the killer question come last? Because actually on a programme like Midweek, Sometimes if there's something which itself. they are possibly going to, which you clearly are not going to be able to mm. skate around... You know, I sometimes say to them beforehand, or sometimes I'm interested, should we get the prison bit over with first, then we can have <laughs> yeah. some fun? Yeah. You know, and actually <coughs> people quite like that, that approach, mm. you know, so let's, let's just get this out and open with, and usually they have a version that they wish to speak of how they feel about it. Yes. Um, I should say, which is one other thing I'd like to say very, very quickly, is um, I have been on the other end of it because I write novels, <clears throat> and also because... Uh, five years ago, I lost my son. He killed himself. He, he was becoming very ill, and he, but he had written some wonderful things, and these were collected by Professor Duncan Wu of Oxford and by me together in a book called The Silence at the Song's End. And obviously, we published this ourselves simply because publishers just wanted me to write a misery memoir. You know, I said, sod off, you know, so this is his writing. It's what we're doing with a small linking script from me. So, obviously, we wanted people to know about it. And I thought, well, how am I going to do interviews? I haven't done any interviews at all about the subject. God knows people are at you. Believe me, the moment your child kills themselves, the telegraph is on the bloody phone saying, do you feel there's anything that, as a mother, you could have done to prevent this? You know, the day before the funeral, this was... Um, you know, people are appalling. Um, but I'd always said, no, 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 because that's none of anybody's bloody business. But I wanted to talk about this book, and I'm afraid I took the... <clears throat> for the first outings, I've done it several times now with journalists, which is fine, I said, I will do Jenny Murray on Woman's Hour, <laughs> and I will do Outlook on World Service, and that is all. And I did those two things, because I knew that Jenny would ask the hard and quite painful questions well, and that I would wish to answer her honestly. You know, but I knew, as a journalist, I knew exactly who I was and was not going to talk to. And um, I think people are getting more and more savvy about that. Would you be interviewed by Camilla? Um, I don't think I'd be quite famous enough. <laughs> oh, <laughs> actually. But, yeah, I probably would because I don't actually have any secrets. I mean, I have talked about the whole business of losing a child before, partly because, you know, you do website things and so on. 
for health talk online because it helps other people. And I don't have any secrets. I've been married once and I haven't had any affairs. Um, and I don't know how you could embarrass me. I'm sure you could think of a way. Um, no, no, no. I mean, you could say you're actually a bit of a phony, aren't you? And I would say, we all are, darling. <laughs> so, you, yes, I probably would, before, but I don't have secrets. If I had secrets, that would be different. Before I open up the floor, you, you said that, um, that you thought there were certain areas in an interview that should be off-limits. Isn't there a pact? I mean, Camilla interviews stars who are there to plug their shows, but they know they're going to have to reveal something of their private lives, because that's what we all want to know. We don't really want to know about the background, about how a movie was made. We want to know, you know, how they live. Isn't there a, a moment when you open yourself up and, you, and you've made a pact? No I, want, no, I don't think there is, really. I think the, the, not, not about everything. I think what is interesting to me is what is there of you that has gone into this creative interesting performance work. What have you put into it and where did you get it from? And that is about the show and therefore you're, you're sort of all right on it. You know, if, if, there's, if, they've done, if you're interviewing them about <coughs> something completely different, like, you know, they're the new chairman of, of some multinational company, uh, you know, then, then maybe things are less relevant. I don't know. But then even, even then, but what, what is there of you? What is it? What made you? That's all what we want to know I about it's, it's, each it's, other. It's, the more we, we start to, review, to regard interviews as raw business deals where you get your <laughs> oh, yeah, 40 okay. minutes and you, OK, so I come away with the bit about, you know, your, your divorce or whatever. I think that's, that's it's anathema to a, a proper, lively, interesting, different interview. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I, I really fight against it and it drives me mad when you're sitting next to... I mean, you know, I was, I was talking to Leonardo DiCaprio's girlfriend, Bar oh. Raffaelli, <laughs> and the only reason I'm there is because she's Leonardo DiCaprio's girlfriend. So, of course, I ask her, hey, what's it like? Because I'm obviously speaking her, you know. Um, and, uh, <laughs> uh, what's it like? But she refused to answer the question. She just refused to answer the question. And we reached a sort of, like, weird impasse. And if I'd been sort of slightly older and more experienced, I probably would have said, don't you realise this is the only reason you're here? <laughs> like that, because, you know... I, I had to do that once. I, I, the, the lowest form of life on any film or television set is the Radio Times feature writer. Especially <laughs> 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 the young red. That's been me. And I did at one stage, there was one very distinguished actor who was totally determined to give me... Like, he'd be told by the producer to come over and talk to me five minutes. He was doing the old... I said, what do I do this? And it's called acting, darling. <laughs> and I did actually say to him, I said, look, I, I really hate to say this, you know, and you're really... I, I do admire your work, so, but do you want to be on the cover of the Radio Times or not? Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what that was about. <laughs> the only thing... You see, I, I think there have to be proper human sensitivities. I mean, you appear to say that any, because somebody is in the public eye for whatever reason, anything in their life is up for grabs. You see, I don't think no, that's that... that's a different thing right, from what I said. OK. It, well, I'll just say, you see, it worries me, <laughs> because there's a... You see, for example, there's a... There's a well-known... We've got tension between interviews, have we? <laughs> I didn't right, say it's... that. I didn't it's say a... that. You put it in the paper. <clears throat> there's a well-known novelist whose um, <clears throat> who's husband killed herself. Now, she doesn't talk about that publicly because her daughters don't want her to. Um... And I've interviewed her several times, and I've said... And we, you know, we did an hour on BBC4, and I said, look, it's the whole of your life, and we are going to have to do this. And we came up with a form of words, but it is very difficult there. Mm. You see, if I interviewed Libby... I mean, well, I, don't, I mean, it's in the public domain, so I don't think he'd mind me saying it. I mean, when, Melvin Bragg, when I interviewed him, when his book came out, which was about the suicide of his first wife, um, <clears throat> I thought, well, I'm going to have... 
you know, you, I have to do this because the book's about it. Now, I wouldn't normally do this, and there is actually a BBC guideline against doing deals with interviewees, although it happens realistically all the time. But I rang him up, and, I, and suddenly when I did A.S. Byatt, who's, um, who lost a son, uh, and I just said, look, I think we have to do this. What do you think? And, we, and they agreed that they would. Now, interestingly, in both those cases, the publicist had said they won't. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and I find that increasingly the case. I mean, I, want, I did Phil Collins for um, TV, and his publicist rang up the day before and said, just to make it clear, Phil doesn't talk about any personal or professional interviews, uh, issues. And I said, but hang on, we've got an hour to fill. So <laughs> if I can't do personal or professional, and he said, I'm just telling you. And, but that was really, because he then came, um, and you see, you could put this in, but I couldn't because it's, well, I didn't mention it in the interview, but um, uh, he, we were in the makeup room beforehand, and he said, have my lot been on to you? And I said, yeah. And he said, what did they say? So I told him, he said, ah, oh, don't say anything. Said, that. Just ask me anything you want. Um, and so often the publicists yeah. are more protective. Yes. Of the, yeah. And they haven't even spoken to the guests. tell you a very, very quick counterintuitive um, in art of the interview, Phil Collins' story. For years and years ago, I was, he was standing in for Simon Bates on Radio 2, and I was asked at very short notice by the Radio Times, you know, somebody had dropped out, to rush down and interview him at his studio. Well, I had children of the wrong age at the time. I didn't know who Phil Collins was. <laughs> I didn't know... I couldn't... Pre-internet, couldn't, couldn't get at any facts about him. You absolutely <laughs> squat about Phil Collins. But all except that he was standing in for Simon Bates. So I just went along and sort of said, what do you feel about this standing in for Simon Bates? And he thought about it. And I said, he's a, he's, apparently he's a great friend of yours. He said, no, he's not. You know, no, he's a bit of a prat, actually. Um, and I said, well, do you, do you like the radio? And he went into this terrific riff about being a child and listening to the radio and what it had meant to him and all that stuff. And I just wrote all this stuff down and sent it to the Radio Times for the money. And um, I got nominated for an award for this. <laughs> and there was, there was this sort of huge sort of citation, sort of saying, you know, could have done the ordinary pop interview with <laughs> Phil Collins, but instead, you know, got at a whole side of the man. Uh, I couldn't have done the ordinary pop interview with Phil Collins, so there you are. But sometimes it, it pays to be a prat. <laughs> Has, have any of the three of you ever uh, agreed to copy approval, or would you? No. No. Can't do it. No. Uh, well, it, in the BBC, you, you can't, no. although it does happen, frankly, but, I mean, it, you're not supposed to. And or, I do. or, or at the Camilla, if, you had, if you had the number one star in the whole world, whoever that would be, maybe Phil Collins, would you... Um, would no, you, no, 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 no. Never? Yeah. No. No, the Times doesn't either. No. I've no, done no. stuff for yeah. them, and people do ask. Yeah. And I just say, well, you know, you either trust us or you don't. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just say very quickly, because you want tension. It's not tension, actually, but I was interested. One of the things Libby said she would never do, you see, I do... Quite, I don't know if it was a reference, but I do it quite a lot, and I do it for a reason, which is, I think short questions are good. I think sometimes in certain interviews you do have to do long, complex questions, and sometimes I will mention other people I've spoken to, and it's for a simple reason that if, for example, you're doing Clint Eastwood um, and you're number 20 in a day of 28 interviews and you've been given eight minutes, the fact is, if you actually say in the first one, Steven Spielberg said this to me on that, it does actually alter the nature of the thing. And similarly, if you interview Philip Roth and he knows you've done Updike and Vonnegut and Mailer and all that. And also, because Anybody they're... Anybody else you want to mention? Yeah. <laughs> but, but no, but... Would you, would you do that on air, though? Or um, I, would, I mean, you can do I, it beforehand. No, I would, some, I would sometimes in a question, because, you see, 
if you if you're interviewing Philip Roth and you say, you know, why do you write your books? Do you write long sentences or short sentences? They're just going to blank you. If you say, you know, John Updike told me that he writes a sentence for this reason, mm -hmm. they actually will engage with it at a different level. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, but also basically. they actually they take you more seriously. But also they are in the same field. I mean, I wouldn't. It's not. It is a kind of name dropping, but it's not like no, I, you know, yeah. I saw Leonardo DiCaprio the other day. It's somebody who is in the same field yeah. of theirs. But also, um, it gives them, it gives you a slight glorious possibility that they might say, "Well, of course, Updike's a prat." You know, then you've well, got that, a news, then happened. you got a news line. Yeah, we got that because we, we actually <laughs> got one accidentally because to Tom Wolfe um, got violently angry about John Irving and uh, John Updike. So, talking of approval, when I was at the Guardian, we had an interview with Warren Beatty, and apparently he'd been given photo approval. <laughs> Anyways, at half past six on a Friday evening, we had to send the photo to Los Angeles, and the and, and the uh, it was taken by Eamon McCabe, who's a very good uh, portrait photographer. And the message came back: Warren says, "Get rid of the neck." <laughs> <laughs> and we all sat around saying, "What do you mean, get rid of the neck? Yeah. What, just cut it out?" I tell you, if I were ever to get hit on by one of the Camillas, I'd rather have photo approval than copy approval. Yeah. Yes. Much rather. There's pictures just, of me looking like I a big bloody Warren Beatty. I did Warren Beatty for the radio, and um, <clears throat> and for the big ones, we we tend to take um, sound engineers all to make sure that it's recorded properly. But the only problem is because they are obsessed with the quality of the sound, they will quite often stop the interview because they can hear a plane or you know, these things you don't expect in London, <clears throat> like planes and sirens and uh, reversing trucks. Anyway, um, we got about two questions in with Warren Beatty, and the sound guy said, um, can we stop, can we stop? There's, um, there's this weird creaking sound in my um, cans. And so he started casting, no, no, I can hear this really weird creaking. And I looked at the producer, and we thought, God, it's his face. Because he's had all these... Um, <laughs> and, um, and, um, <clears throat> and I became convinced that it was his ears and, um, that were creaking. And so the sound guy's walking around the room, and he says, um, we've, got to, um, we've got to find where this is. And he's doing that thing. They go around, going around listening. Oh, no. Um, That's so embarrassing. And then... Um, and I don't know if it really was the case or not, but the sound guy decided it was the leather jacket that Warren Beatty was uh, <laughs> wearing, so he took it off. But I think they're still creaking on the interview. But you hear this funny... Uh... Anyway, that, uh, talking about ears, let's uh, listen to some questions. If anyone has a question, put your hand up and say who you are, and uh, we'll carry on. This is all fascinating. Hello, I'm Sarah Modlock. I'm a financial journalist. Um, first of all, wow, um, I could listen to all of you all day. I'm actually thinking of having a dinner party and inviting you all just so I can hear more. Um, but I have a question about um, whether you, when you've interviewed somebody and you, they've told you something that doesn't necessarily add any more to the interview, but your instinct is to perhaps not use it because they've been so generous in other ways that it wouldn't add more and that it would perhaps be a little bit unkind. Also, bearing in mind that you might burn that, them as a contact and also kill off any opportunities of uh, potential other interviewees signing up. Have you ever suppressed a piece of information or a quote um, for those reasons? I don't think any of us is going to admit that we have, to be I fair. Yeah, oh, I oh, you have. Oh, oh. Yeah. no, I haven't. Yeah. No, no, just very briefly, years, years ago, I was interviewing um, somebody who was half drunk, quite distinguished actor, and he started ranting about how having kids had ruined his life and how his kids were little assholes and he hated them. They were about 11 and 12 <coughs> at the time. And I just thought, you're pissed, you know, you're out of it. 
I, I wrote in the interview that I thought he was out of it and pissed and so on, but I wasn't going to quote that he hated his children because they were 11 and 12 years old, and why should I make the world a bit more miserable than it already is? Um, I don't know what, whether that's a good decision or not. But... The, re- the, the journalist with heart. The journalist with heart. Well, I, I think, I think it is, it's, it's very often people's children. I, I, it's what I say about proper human sensitivities. I interviewed a novelist once for the radio. He rang up <clears throat> later that afternoon and he said, look, um, I want to ask you not to run two of the things I said. And one of them was that he had writer's block and that he thought he might never write another novel. And I said, no, look, I'm sorry, I don't see why. And I said, why? And he said, oh, they'll make fun of me in private eye and there'll be all this. And I said, no. And then the other one was that he'd said something about his daughter. And I thought, well, <clears throat> you know, I've got a daughter. I wouldn't. Um, so I thought about that and I thought, no, I can see that's going to make her very unhappy. It doesn't actually add um, anything to the knowledge of this person. And frankly, you know, why? what's the point of sharing that? He went slightly further than he did. But it's interesting you mentioned the point of generosity. Um, he'd relaxed into the interview more than I think perhaps he expected to. And he'd said, and he'd gone slightly further. And I think in those circumstances, I think it's a case by case. I think always, I think people's children, you have to be really, really careful. Because, yes, I think, sorry, I would revise yeah. that. I have had an incident where... Uh, the interviewee's 15-year-old son came in and started interrupting and being sort of, you know, wasn't very interesting and being ructious, but it was quite funny to see them interacting. And I just thought, and he said, please don't, he's young, we're going through a divorce with his mother, please don't put it in, so I didn't. Um, Although I did have one very funny incident, now I'm remembering. Um, I interviewed Sadie Frost, and um, I asked her if she'd ever taken drugs... (laughs) And she said, no, no, no. <laughs> and afterwards, the PR asked me not to put it in because she'd look really stupid. <laughs> so I didn't. I was like, fine. Talking of people's, people's, um, people's family members coming in during an interview, we, we, we had an actual experiment conducted by my evil husband. I was being interviewed by, by some sort of, sort of uppity little maven from the Sunday Telegraph um, <laughs> about, about a book. Do you ever work on the Sunday Telegraph? <laughs> And he, he, he came in wearing an apron and bringing in a strawberry shortcake that he had just made um, and, you know, served us strawberry short, shortcake to try and lure her into doing that. And, of course, in the interview, you know, he said, you know, the husband comes in with an apron, strawberry shortcake. Paul then wrote about this in his Times food column mm. with the recipe for the strawberry shortcake. <laughs> and I wrote about how he had done this deliberately and then done the recipe. So the strawberry shortcake got sort of three outings. <laughs> but but that, yeah. was, that was because we were very unhappy. I didn't... My publisher was making me do that. I didn't wish to do an interview at home. I don't like letting people into the house... Uh, I don't mind so much as Paul does, but he now bans it totally. Mm. No house stuff. Because people just interview the curtains, you know, <coughs> yeah. you know the, and, and sort of sneer at your furniture and, and, and the hell with them, really. Mm. Uh, I, I think it's a great shame, because I, I agree with you, it would be brilliant if you can get into people's real homes. Yes. You know, but so many really cheapo, horrible interviewers have just done it for the sneer mm. that yeah. now people won't let you in anymore. John Updike, I did him in a, we did him in a hotel for radio, and he said the reason was that his wife had said that she didn't want any more assholes from England coming and reviewing <laughs> her curtains. Sorry, Deborah Hall. Hello. In, in my previous life as a PA, I worked on a documentary about John Updike, and um, ever afterwards in the music and arts department, as it was then, there was the phrase Updikean hospitality. We spent <laughs> three weeks with John Updike, with him and his family. At the end of that, the LX 
electrician gave him a big pack of um, nuts because he absolutely adores nuts. This is the Sparks who did this. They did not at any point even offer us a cup of coffee and I had to go and get coffee from the corner shop and bring it back every single day. So I take great exception to that. <laughs> so there you are, Updike in hospitality. New phrase for you. Can I just say one other thing? about leaving things out. Um, I mean, I think... I have another rule, which is that... Um, if, if I know somebody is lying, um, I wouldn't... I would tend to take it out of the interview. It's in that area yes. of drugs. I mean, I've done actors where... I mean, I did an actor in this building who did a whole thing on air about how clean he was and he, <coughs> you know, he had 15 years sober. Um, but he left the room three times to go to the, um, the disabled bathroom. And, I mean, you, you know, maybe he had a stomach problem, maybe he didn't. Um, I just was... And he, you know, I'm not a doctor, but his, you look at his eyes, and I just thought. So I thought, what's the point of running that? Because um, they're obviously lying. And again, you get into these areas where people talk about their fantastic um, family life, and you, you know, you know stories, and I just think no. So, okay. but you, you see, okay. we can't do issue. we can't you do can't the insisted or yeah. claimed mm. or whatever. Okay. There's no way of doing we, that. We on had radio. one pop singer who who pitched up for midweek and was absolutely silent and monosyllabic and glum in the hospitality room. By the way, 20 minutes in the hospitality beforehand is really important to me. You never talk about the subject you're going to talk about, but you try and make some kind of reasonable connection. human connection mm. with them. Um, but he was he just wouldn't say a word, and he just went off to the gents and came back and was absolutely sparkling. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I was quite. Uh, I was quite surprised at first, then I suddenly realised exactly why he was <laughs> sparkling so much. So perhaps we should give it to them in the hospitality. <laughs> no, it's, it's actually it's the water in the bathrooms in the BBC. You want to try it? If anyone wants to go now, please feel free. Uh, another question here. Hi, um, Simon Jones, Scrammed at 7. Um, in the business world, it's typical to have an agenda. You know, in, in a business meeting, you say what topics you want to talk about. And in your uh, game and your business, how many of you uh, are pre screened by? Um, you know, gatekeepers, and, and you know, how, how often do you run through the things that you want to ask them? Um, and obviously, they know you're going to hit them with the key question, or they're going to, you know, they know you're probing. Um, but, but how, or how often is it just a natural chat? <laughs> Researchers, we have, we have researchers who, who are one researcher on midweek and, and the producer who will have spoken to them before, if they can. You can't always. Sometimes you just have to read the stuff and watch the film or whatever it is. Um, so, so they will have done some of that. But um, as to what questions will you ask, you never, ever go through those. I mean, that, with them, that, that would be disastrous. That would cause too much preparation. Sometimes, if somebody is really shy and nervous, I do tell them what the first question is going to be. You know, if they're amateur interviewee, the so first on question. You get yes. the impression that <laughs> the first question you set it up. Um, well, the, 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 the setup first. That's just round the table, so yeah. their voices are heard. It's an irritating thing, but it means if everyone's voice is heard, it means you don't have to keep introducing them later on in the program. Um, but no, the, their first actual question of the interview. Sometimes, an amateur, you will sort of say, "Yes, actually, look, the first thing I'm going to ask you is this. We're going to start on that." But normally, no. And I don't like the idea of. Sometimes people ask for a submitted list of questions. The Duke of Edinburgh's office did when he came on midweek. They asked for a submitted list of questions, and we said, well, that's really difficult, but among them might be, and we mentioned two. He never even looked at them, didn't give a toss, you know, it was the equerry. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, he, he was perfectly happy with anything. In fact, he loved being on midweek. He wrote me a note afterwards saying, it is so much more fun than when one is all on one's own. <laughs> and he sort of thought, here is this guy, 
for years and years he's been doing one-on-ones about the World Wildlife Fund and stuff, and he's been longing to do the chat show circuit and mix it. Mark? Um, sorry, what's this question? This the question was, do you, ever, do you ever have some oh, good yes, questions? Oh, yes, No, I try to have no... Um, I aim for no contact whatsoever um, with the person beforehand. It was you have the green room. You see, we don't. I, um, I, I avoid them, if possible, until I get into the studio. So for the, the TV ones, um, we were made up in separate rooms and that kind of thing. Because I just think that any contact is risky before that interview in various ways. Um, <clears throat> I think that the person... There's something odd that happens in any kind of broadcasting, whether it's live or pre-recorded, um, and I do both. And I've done it myself as an interviewee. You think, have I just said that? Um, and you don't know whether you've just said it in the interview or whether you said it in the green room, and I think it's better to remove that ambiguity. And I, don't, I prefer the producers to have as little as possible to do with the PRs. Because actually, if you talk to them, well, as you well know, they start putting... Um, uh, regulations on, and often the PRs will say, "Can they talk to me beforehand?" And um, we just always say no, because I, I, I never see what good could come from that conversation. Because it would only be a restriction; it would not be um, encouraging. It's very important that thing you say about people not saying the same thing twice in 20 minutes. But I mean, I just try and avoid them doing anything about their subject really in the green room. You know, we generally manage to talk about something else, or they each talk about each other's thing a little bit, because uh, there are four of them. Uh, that's better. But I, I find that the personal contact before is helpful, partly because, of course, a lot of mine are not as distinguished as your yeah. top artists would be, you know, and, and they're afraid. You know, they think they're going to make fools of themselves. I, they yeah. need to know that I don't want them to make fools of themselves. That's true. Now, if I do drama students or anything, or people who... I mean, I, I would always talk to them for that reason beforehand, yes, yeah, so that they're not I mean, alarmed. I'm, I'm, I, I, again, I'm writing, so it's a sort of different thing. But I have can have a lot of involvement with my interviewees beforehand. I'm very happy to send over an email with an idea of what I'd like to discuss with a PR. I often feel they do that so that if something goes wrong later, they can refer it back to the celebrity or the, or the personage and say, but look, she said she wasn't going to ask about, you know, this or this or this. So I, I feel that that's them covering their asses. to be honest. But you also, when you do interviews, often you, within the interview itself, you'll say, you know, the PR man was annoying or he said, don't yes. mention that, so yes. I will, almost. Oh. My you know, wor- oh, or the actor yeah. says, oh, you know, I've I, I had 25 affairs, but please don't mention any of them. Yes. And you actually use that as part of the technique. The narrative, yes. And, I mean, I, I have no idea why PRs sit in on interviews. It's automatically guaranteed to annoy the interviewer. No, again, so that's something that no good comes of that. Why on, I mean, you know, if somebody starts talking about something and you sort of say, oh, don't, don't talk about that... You know, you've immediately got, you've immediately highlighted, it's almost like the injunctions in a weird sort of way, you immediately highlighted something that everybody's going to start talking about. So I think that you have to be very careful, you have to keep, you know, and a really good PR will, of course, not sit in, will be, you know, very smooth about it and make you feel that he or she has not been involved. Classic PR own girl, of course, was uh, Alistair Campbell sitting in the corner saying, we don't do God. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because that immediately exactly. set up the whole legend that, that Tony Blair was a puppet with Alistair Campbell's hand off the back of his jacket. They try to sit in the studio sometimes. We have, um, in most BBC studios, there are four chairs for um, roundtable discussions, but I'm mainly doing one-on-one interviews. And there are certain PRs who just come in first, actually, and they plonk themselves down 
uh, in one of the four chairs, and they expect to be in the studio. So we just uh, and I just tell them to uh, get out. But the funny that they, they so they're then they're then behind the glass, mm -hmm. and so they do start doing these frantic signals. And <laughs> a few times on air, I've said your PR is making frantic cutthroat signals behind um, the, the glass, <laughs> say, um, but they can't actually see them. As a journalist turned gamekeeper, what I basically say to people is, don't say anything you don't want to see in print. I mean, it's that simple. You know. Exactly. So you, if you're stupid enough to start talking about something you don't want to mention, you don't want mentioned, you're stupid. Hey, celebrities, you can say, I don't want to answer that yeah, question. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, and they do, and, and experienced, you know, will be very charming about it and just sort of move do you, off. Do you do any of, if you've been getting on really well, do you ever do any off the record afterwards that the, the machine is switched off, you know, the notebook is put down, you just sort of say, I was wondering, is so-and-so all right, you know? I don't try and trick them into that. Yeah. No, no. I mean, this I mean, is, this I is not trick. I, mean, I just, I did it the other day. I interviewed somebody who has a very distinguished parent who I know to be mm -hmm. advancing Alzheimer's, just because mm -hmm. I know people who know him. And I, I kind of put everything down and said, "Look, this, this is not about the interview, yeah. but I just want to know how is he." Yeah, you know, okay. uh, that, yes. that was that was for real. But it suddenly occurred to me that actually this was for a newspaper. I was doing it. Oh my God, does he believe that I'm tricking him? No, yeah, that, that I, 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 I try and not sort of interview anybody I have any particular backstory or back narrative with otherwise it does get very complicated like that um, and for me the interview starts from the moment I send the first email or see them first yeah. and ask them for the interview right through to the to, uh, and often what happens after the interview um, is also quite yeah, amusing. Caitlin Moran, Caitlin Moran did uh, Lady Gaga and basically mm. described an outrageously and very funny night out with yeah. her, where they obviously went on the pits until yeah. about half past three in the morning. Mm. Now, I don't know, it didn't said in the piece whether she actually agreed, but it was very, very funny, and it was a brilliant article, and you felt you were right in there, yeah, but, it, yeah, yeah. but it wasn't an interview, they just went out. Well, there's a lot more ambiguity. I mean, that's what I envy. Um, I mean, I still occasionally do them for print. There is this sort of threshold ambiguity, which is the stuff they say at the door, and you don't have that in broadcasting because mm. there's a big light... And they're much, the sense of on and off the record is much, much clearer. Um, and there's a real frustration in radio and TV that sometimes when the light's gone off, they'll say, well, that's what I really think of Leonardo. Um, and there's nothing you can do. Now, if they were stupid enough to do that with you, I mean, you can have that if you want. Yes. Um, and it's, and, and nobody's ever been clear. A very distinguished interviewer, a newspaper interviewer who better remain nameless, said quite late in her career that she'd never really understood what on and off the record meant. No, and I At a similar event um, like this. And you do, so it is, you do have that. Advantage. I've almost got to the stage. And also, funnily enough, politicians are the worst offenders because they feel that they can control the interview by saying, hey, I'm saying this, but the reason is because I hate that person, kind of thing, because they're, you know, special cases, politicians. Um, and I, I think that, you know, I'm almost at the point of saying, look, nothing that happens here is off the record. Please stop saying this and then elaborating, because you'll get five, six seven times and then at which point it becomes a statement of no value whatsoever because all they're doing is just trying to control the space because they feel insecure I think. At one session um, that the academy did I was deeply shocked to hear young reporters say that when they get these celebrity interviews you know for the, for the news or whatever you know, you know the sort of little short ones in, in hotels that actually very often the filming is being done by the yeah publicists about the company and if they don't like it they will not give you the mm. memory stick thing with the interview on it so they are in total control for those and that is sometimes being done for news broadcasts which makes me go what um yeah huh? it's, a, it's against uh, um i think i think i don't know you'd have to ask someone at the college of journalism um I, 
it seems to me pretty clearly against BBC guidelines, but all broadcasters do it. Um, I mean, I, there are some people I haven't been able to interview because we won't let them record the um, interview. And it's for a simple reason, as you say. If we'd let them record Russell Crowe, nobody would ever know what had happened because they wouldn't have given us the tape at the end of it. But it is, uh, it is routinely done, and it's... Um, uh, now, I think it's very worrying there. Is, is this because of the rise of... I mean, obviously, the, the, the rise of the celebrity, but... Um, their ability to control these interviews or, or some, some of these interviews because there are so many magazines that want them. They can, if they can, they can now... They have people begging for the interview. Is yeah. that, is that it's not just magazines now. I've been shocked. Um, you go to these, the, the junkets, which are usually at the Dorchester or the Soho Hotel, and um, I mean, even in the last five years, I mean, the number of outlets, it's, it's probably increased by 400 500% because of online. And the problem is that, you know, we're trying to hold out for the luxury of eight minutes. Um, and a lot of these people will, they will literally agree to 30 seconds with um, DiCaprio or Nicole Kidman simply to get a quote. And there are, there are BBC, you know, it's different. It, Radio 1 is different. I think that's a completely different area. Uh, it's fine. You know, all they want in Newsbeat is just one quote from this person so-and-so was really great to work with. But the problem is that if you have 40 of them who are all getting 30 seconds, and they'd rather have that, because as you suggested in the question, it's total control. There, are, there aren't going to be any difficult follow-ups, because there aren't any follow-ups. I mean, it's just, um, it's just one question. I don't think we should play. I just no, don't, I just don't think we should play at all. I think, no. I think we, should, we should go on strike. So I'm sorry, I'm not interested. But, Libby, if you, know. you, were, you, know, you were running Radio 1, I mean, it's yeah. difficult, isn't it? I mean, does your audience actually want more than them just saying, play I've been going record. out with so-and-so for six <laughs> weeks, and that's what... Um, and you see, there is a more, even more pernicious thing, which is they send out this thing called an EPK, an electronic press kit, which has quotes and interviews. Um, and I just wonder sometimes whether some of those are going out. Um, I suspect they are. So I, I think um, you know, it gets into very difficult areas. And those go out with, with uh, audio as well, do they? Oh, yeah, no, they send you audio and video that, that it will have 30 seconds, 45 seconds, and then they send you a list and it will say DiCaprio on his co-star, DiCaprio on um, why he wants to make a documentary about global warming, which he's flying to Cannes in a private jet to promote, and that kind of thing. And um, you're just offered these on a list. And um, you, you, you'd have to editorially be incredibly strong not to run some of those because actually if you do well I, I totally agree with Libby on this I think he should refuse to play but if you ring up and say um, look we want to do our own interview with him for this they will just say in that dreaded phrase that um, Simon Cowell has introduced to the language you know what that everyone now says they will say you know what we've given you the interview with him um, uh, why do you need your own and so as, uh, and it's a whole different conference that but You'd have to be so strong editorially to resist that always. Next question. Joshua Rosenberg. Um, I was once a BBC reporter, and uh, I was sent to interview uh, a very senior BBC editor when the BBC was in some legal trouble. And uh, I, this is more than ten years ago. He's no longer working for the BBC. And uh, I went along with a camera crew to this man's office, and I was told to wait outside. Uh, in fact, I was going to meet the cameraman there. And um, after a few minutes, the um, cameraman came out, and I said, all right, we're going to go in and do the interview now. And uh, the cameraman said, oh, no, no. Um, he said, come in, um, I'll answer the question that you would have asked, and I'll give you the film. And so <laughs> I didn't get a chance to answer, ask any question at all. And so this was this BBC editor doing precisely what you've said the BBC should never do. 
Simon Altman, I, I know we're all familiar with the idea that people give interviews because they're, they're pushing something. Um, I've noticed on the sports pages now, a lot of sports people appear to give interviews providing their sponsor gets a name at the bottom of the article. I mean, not because the sponsor is launching anything or doing anything, just that that's the price of the interview. And I'm wondering if that's what you think of that and if that's spreading to other areas than, than sports people. It's horrifying. I think it's... I mean, I was watching... Um, uh, I was watching a BBC sports program the other day, and it did say at the end, um, Stephen Gerrard is an ambassador for LucasAid Light Orange or something. And, I think um, that's hilarious, it's though. It's I, horrifying, I, I though. Think, it's, <laughs> but it's, it's wrong, though, isn't it? Um, I think that I, I don't read the italics at the bottom of interviews. I've sort of, I'm, I'm completely agnostic when it comes to credits, I have to say. I know that's probably a bad thing to say, but um, I think that, you know, I wouldn't agree to one. Um, but, you know, take it by a case-by-case case basis. I mean, you know better than me, but I think it's the case. And I say, I'm not... I, all these decisions editorially are reporting because you end up losing the interview. But I think it's the case, isn't it, that if you interview an England cricketer, they have to have the Vodafone cap yeah. on. I mean, that's in their contracts. Yes, and so it doesn't matter what guidelines you draw up as the BBC. If you want to talk to Strauss about the Ashes, he will be... The first thing the audience will see is Vodafone. And um, I don't know how you deal with all that because, uh, I, I'm, like Libby, I mean, I'm theoretically very puritanical about all this, but you end up with networks and newspapers that just don't have any of these people, and you can't really put a thing on the front page or be running captions on screen saying the BBC does not cooperate with sports stars who insist on promoting. I mean, it's hilarious if you... I mean, I'm obsessed with football, and so I watch a lot of it, but the, um, it is hilarious in those interviews, the extent to which they get in the sponsors. Gerard will only, ever be, will only yeah. be wearing... will yeah. always be in an Adidas shirt. Yeah, he has to wear the Adidas. But some of them go even further, and they say, um, they say uh, you, you must have run ten miles in that game, and they say, yeah, well, I, you know, Luke said light, or whatever, it's, um, you know, had it before the game. <laughs> and some of them will really do that, and there's nothing you can do, because it's, um, it, it's live. I sort of uh, I have a slight reservation on on you know on, on normal sort of irritation to all that sponsorship thing, which is actually in the subsidised arts. I have uh, lately on, on the Times we have made a decision, which will be as I'll announce shortly, that when a play has been particularly sponsored by a particular sponsor. We are a commercially realistic organisation and we understand that, you know, the Arts Council England has got less and less money. So, therefore, if Coots has sponsored something at the Almeida, we're going to put it in the line at the bottom. So, box office to 15th April, main sponsor Coots. And we hope that other newspapers will follow. I bet the BBC will never follow. No, but we're not I think, to do But that. I think that is a pity because there are cases where, I mean, people now talk openly about the travel X season at the National Theatre and so on, that if commercial companies are not going to support the subsidised arts because they think they'll get no credit, for it, then they won't do it. And therefore, I think, you know, one has... There, I have a slight... You know, I, I feel that actually, yeah, come on, they put money into this, they didn't get anything out of it. You're not saying bank at Coots or drink, drink Fanta or whatever. Also, it'd be good to You're encourage other big That's you know, the whole point. That, to, but, I mean, okay. I mentioned this to an artistic director the other day, and he said, oh, my God, he said, I hope you really are going to do this. And I, I think the newspaper is going to do it, at my sort of urging. Because, he said, then, are we will be able to go to companies and say, look, you will get the word Fanta at the very end of a theatre review. You know, what's not to like? All I would ask... Uh, well, you see, the only question there, because uh, we have this weird thing, and I think it's very odd, is that whereas you can refer to the nationwide premiership on the BBC Quite, and all that and kind Benson of stuff... Hedges cricket. All of that, yeah. yeah you, we, we can't say travel X or whatever. We're not supposed to. Um, the only area is, you see, I had this, is that um, 
I think you have to then be allowed, if you wish, to um, make a point of the incongruity of somebody sponsoring a certain thing. Mm. Um, because it does arise uh, in the arts. Um, I mean, they often, with a new play, they don't know what it's about. But, I mean, you go and see these plays, and these American uh, multinationals uh, sponsoring plays that are about how dreadful American multinationals are. Now, do they know that? Um, but it's still, it's an interesting point. And so I would say, if, you, if, you, if, you're, if you're to be encouraged to mention them, you have to be allowed to mention them negatively. Uh, if you want. Why is the BBC allowed to bang on about the Benson and Hedges cricket? Because it's in or the contracts with the sporting... But um, not mention the actually rather sort of more, more uplifting travel ex sponsorship of cheap National Theatre tickets. It's all contracts. You can't... Um, if the National Theatre had a contract with the BBC to review their plays, which would obviously raise other ethical issues, um, you would... It, they would get it written in the contract. It's purely to do with sporting rights and how hard they are to get. So they, they, it's who has the power. Let's have some more questions. Hi, um, Madeline Howard. I had a question about um, that Libby alluded to, the senior colleague who had the injunction. I was interested <laughs> to hear your thoughts on to what extent you thought that compromised him or not. Well, I think it did, and I think he knows it did, and that's why he went and jumped up and down and outed himself. You know, it's, it's all been very difficult and embarrassing. I can see that people do these things for what seem at the time good reasons. Though I have to say, in, in another case where somebody said they were doing it for the sake of their two teenage children, we worked out that the injunction had cost 25K. You know, knowing teenagers as I do, give them 10K each. <laughs> Spend the five taking the wife to Venice for a week, you know, sorted. You know, <laughs> family's going to find out anyway. Why enrich lawyers? So you I think you should go to shillings and offer that as a, <laughs> yeah. as a, as a solution. But I think it, I think it made I, I think it made him look daft, and I think that's a shame. He's a very good journalist, and it means that now whenever he asks anyone a question about their personal life or about the use of the law or anything, he's he's a bit stuffed, isn't he? I mean. Look at even a lightweight programme like Have I Got News For You and why Angus Deaton, once he became the story, just had to stop doing it. You cannot afford to become the story in that way. And um, I, I think it was just a shame. You see, I think it was worse when he had it. Because I, I don't know this. I mean, I, I wonder if he did get the hand on the shoulder from the BBC in the end, and that's why he dropped it. I think he should have got the hand on the shoulder because there was this mad situation in which when it was the biggest story um, for that couple of weeks where injunctions were the biggest story in the media, they were not being covered on um, the BBC's main Sunday morning political programme, uh, even in the newspaper reviews. And it was a deeply peculiar situation. And I think editorially it was a huge issue. I think he has got the problem now, but I think there's a bigger problem um, then. Yes, I mean, I probably have less value to add here. I agree, obviously, with Libby and Mark. Um, I think it was, you know, probably quite brave of him to do it. There's a great fear, obviously, amongst very rich white males um, that their private lives are going to be splashed all over the, the headlines. And I don't know. I'd quite love it if a few more people kind of uh, sort of assumed the Alan Clark attitude to things, which is like, yeah... Wife and daughter. <laughs> what they don't understand is that it's over so quickly, mm. unless the details of it are particularly appalling. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's actually, it's just over. I mean, the, the, you know, nobody's that interested. You see, gigs would know. have been one day. That's the ludicrous thing, yeah. that he's brought all this on himself. and yes. it's <laughs> Four weeks. Of, well, it's going to be years, isn't that. it? Yes, and it's, exactly. um, yeah. and well, how, how shillings think they're giving value? Mm. <laughs> no. Lay <laughs> uh, back there and then... Um, Hello, I'm Sue Primer. I've prepared a lot of people for interview, and it strikes me that the, the ones that get the best deal are the least famous. 
because they can talk about their expertise, they can talk about their uh, belief, they can talk about their opinion, and that's why they're there. And that somehow, bizarrely, the more uh, famous you become, the less interesting we are forcing you to become because the only thing that is of interest about you is your person and your family and within that only your sex life so would I be right in thinking that the more famous you become the more publicity you get actually the more you are, defi- you are confined to be really rather dull and to be nothing more than a sexual animal Oh, I, 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 well, I, I, I don't, Camilla can speak for newspapers and Mark can speak for, for arts, but I would speak for us. I would say absolutely not. I love the technical. If people are willing and able to do the technical, how I do this as an actor, how I do this as a dancer, you know, how it feels to do this for me, that's what I want. And, I, and we, we give that a lot, but I don't know what the others feel about How Fred the Bed mucked up the bank rather than what he was doing elsewhere. I mean, he, that, well, that, he's Hunter a perfect the question. Is, is, is very, very important uh, for us. I mean, we wouldn't do that because I, I, I would say if Fred the Bed was in, invited on midweek, I would say, look, for God's sake, let the financial journalist do him. You know, let, let, yeah. this is not what we do. But, yeah, no, I, I, I want to know how it is to do what it is they do. That's what interests me. That's, That's what I want to do, but I think the point you raise, it's an important one, as well as alluding to earlier, is that... Um, I think the question of who's important in the media is narrowing to um, a very worrying degree. I mean, we have this curious complication because, yeah, within certain limits, you can interview, as long as they'll do it, you can interview everyone, whoever you want, each yes, Sunday. Exactly. Um, mm. Libby and I are part of this uh, curious and shadowy process called the Clash Committee, um, which <laughs> is that um, because of a rule that... Um, uh, only that each celebrity can only appear once on each BBC network, um, there is this thing called a clash committee. So we all put in bids. So we say, um, you know, you, you want to do uh, DiCaprio, we want to do DiCaprio. Um, and then a BBC committee meets and decides which programme they'll go to. But watching that bidding process and say so you have to do an EOI, an expression of interest, and then it's considered, <laughs> it's considered by the clash committee. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it always says on the... <coughs> When they send around these reminders for the meeting, it always says 3 p.m. the clash, and I always imagine this, uh, <laughs> all these BBC execs in this uh, in this band. But um, so, but what's really interesting and worrying, I think, is that when you look at the EOIs, um, I mean, there's a Paul Theroux novel where someone says there are only 20 people in the world, and they mean 20 people matter. Um, the EOIs are all for the same 15 people, and actually, um, there are hundreds and hundreds of people who are available. But it creates this pressure where... Um, I totally agree with Libby about process. I, I mean, one of the ones I'm proudest of, which is... Um, the other day I did Wayne McGregor, the choreographer, and I don't know much about choreography, and most of the audience wouldn't, but I did feel I got somewhere with him about why he does what he does and the technique of it. But there was a basic feeling that that was just something we ran as a filler because we couldn't get um, the really big people... And I think you have to be really careful because I think often, which is what Libby's saying, um, the, the best interviews can be with the small people or the unknown people. And what, very quickly on this, what worries, I, look, <clears throat> what worries me looking at the BBC archive is that the people who are really big now in all the areas, they were done on BBC programmes when they were no one, when they were in their first play, when they published their first book. And my big concern is that when you look back in 30 years, that won't be the case. You don't get interviewed until you're on the Booker Prize shortlist or until you've won the Booker Prize. We do. 
We um, do. We have all sorts of nonentities. We love it. <laughs> no, well, OK, but how, ma I mean, how many first-time novelists would you have done, for example? Oh, several. Yeah, well, several. Two, two, we've done two several. Two but I, actors, I, but I think you argue... I would argue that when you look back... Um, how can I prove this? I think when you look back, and I think there is a disinclination in a lot of areas... Uh, you may be the glaring exception, uh, to interview people who are not well-known. We had that Tracy M. in in the back of the cab before anybody had heard of her. Very first sh yeah. show. Bit of you controversy know. here. <laughs> Camille, well, um, the question was... The question was, yeah. do people get less interesting the more famous they get? Um, I think that what we're forgetting here is the person that we're writing or broadcasting for. They don't want to... I, I, think, I think it's disrespectful to assume that all they're going to want to know about is whether, you know, Simon Cowell what kind of girls he shags. I think that that's, they're going to want something a lot more sophisticated than that. And um, I think that the best interviews are much more spontaneous um, and with a super famous celebrity, they will you know, have a wealth of experience that you want to write about. Um, and I think we should try and get away from, you know, we need to ask certain questions, the question, get away from sort of recoursing to clichés like, you know, where did you get your ambition from? Or, you know, how come you're so successful and stuff like that? You know, that's in, in, in the preparation for an interview. I spend a lot of time trying to ask questions that nobody else has asked. Um, but that feeds into our sort of obsession with celebrity, which I think in some ways is very disappointing. Most of the most exciting and interesting interviews I've done have been with brilliant, unusual, hilarious, and sometimes really awful people. Um, and... They're the ones that generate the most talk. And people say to you, I saw you did that on Sunday. About a year ago, I did a Muslim fundamentalist. Literally the most ridiculous man I'd ever met. You know, met. He'd, uh, he was trying to take the coffins through Wooden Bassett, and he's still doing um, these stunts. And what I did was, you know, there was a lot of hype in the papers about how frightening he was, encouraging terrorists. When he turned up, it was very clear to me he was just incredibly stupid. And um, what I tried to do in the interview was just show this, and it was very funny. He called me Audrey throughout the interview. And in the end, I said he sort of, like, flounced out. And so, I mean, I sort of remember that as an interview of somebody who was just, you know, amazing character sketch. And um, in... in in the process, I would slightly hope that um, young people, maybe young Muslims, if they were reading that and looking up to him and thinking he was somebody to sort of hitch their sort of, you know, beliefs to or whatever, they would read it and think, but <laughs> this I is absurd. That, that, was, that was a completely brilliant <clears throat> interview. I loved, I loved it that. It was, it was one to do. The business of an obsession with celebrity sex lives, I think this, this is very much driven by the kind of whole Heat magazine, yes. kind of rather Yuffie Hello magazine airhead thing. And, and I, I just keep thinking, possibly it's my age, a wonderful rhyme of Dorothy L. Sayers, where she just said, as I grow older and older and totter towards the tomb, I find that I care less and less who goes to bed with whom. <laughs> <laughs> this is that's that's very much my approach to <laughs> interview people. <laughs> Dominic Rogers, um, just wanted to ask about confrontation in an interview uh, and how that can spell out uh, a really exciting um, exciting event like in like Frost Nixon for example Camilla well as Julie Birchall said yesterday oh I do love a scrap <laughs> um, I think that 
if it happens, it happens. I mean, you know, uh, it's, as I said, the, the beginning interviews are very artificial situations. They can be quite frightening for bo both parties um, in, involved. And, and I've had interviews where the other party has been so, you know, nervous that they've actually sort of preemptively attacked me. So you're out of control of uh, anyway. Um, and, I mean, I think that, you know... I don't really know what to say. Sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. I don't think it makes any difference, particularly to the quality of the interview. Um, when I did Elle McPherson, actually, we had this really awful interview, <laughs> terrible interview. She was very prickly and told me that she had copy, copy approval and things like that. And then when I got back to the office, my editor received a call from her saying, I'm, we didn't like her. Um, you know, I'm afraid, could you send the person that you were originally going to send? We'll do the interview all over again. My editor said, no, we can't. Of course we can't. But we'll send her again. So back I traipsed. Uh, you know, completely different person. So unpleasant, I have to say. Well, yeah, well, I, I, have, I have six people have walked out, which is a little list I keep. Um, well, tell, us, tell us more. Um, well, <laughs> not that you remember them, of course. No, I do. Well, two of them, I mean, they're not well-known people particularly, but um, they are in order. Russell Crowe, um, Sir Alex Ferguson, uh, Geoffrey Archer, um, Robin Gibb, uh, Mark Elder, the conductor, um, which was a curious one, and Errol Morris, the American documentary maker, um, all for different reasons. Um, Sir Alex was because I... Um, Asked him a question. Well, yeah, that was a problem. <laughs> but I said... Um, it was like, I mean, I was getting nowhere at all, and I said, well, I, I'm very conscious when I watch um, the matches that, you know, picky on Sky News, they have... Sorry, Sky Sports there'll be a camera on you for virtually the whole game, and does that make you self-conscious? Are you aware of it? And he said, oh, never, <coughs> never even think about it. As the, um, and I said, well, um, but, and I mean, I have been, you know, I probably shouldn't have done it. And I said, but that thing you do at the end of a game where you hold up your watch and you <coughs> tap it like that, um, it's a bit theatrical, isn't it? And he appeared to take theatrical as a euphemism for gay. And he, <laughs> um, which perhaps it is in Glasgow, I don't know. And he... Um, he started shouting, who's, who, who's he calling theatrical? He started shouting to the, um, the PR. And um, so, so he went. And then they all, raised, they, they all raised different things about interviewing because um, Mark Elder was... He had um, refused or said he would refuse to uh, conduct the uh, Royal Britannia at the last night of the proms. And the PR had said that he wasn't allowed to be asked about it. And I thought that was absurd because... I mean, it would be silly not to. So I asked him, and he just stood up and walked out. And Robin Gibb, I can't remember what it was, actually, but anyway... Uh, enough he, um, confrontations, yeah. 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 It just reminds me, the footballer, uh, I once described a football as being ubiquitous, and he saw me the next time, he said, you call me that again, I'll <laughs> smash your face in. <laughs> I've had two people attack each other on midweek. We've had the famous Joan Rivers and Darkus Howe uh, spat... Um, where I just basically stood back for quite a lot of it and thought, well, I'm not their nanny, you know, and, and Joan has a serious point here. She thinks she's being accused of racism. She wasn't being accused of racism, and Darkus is now making it worse and worse. And So I let, let it go for a bit. But I had a phone call in the middle of the afternoon from Joan. So I didn't know how she got my number. I rang me at home saying, honey, did I call that guy an asshole on the BBC? <laughs> you know, I think, oh, the BBC has some reverence. I said, no, Joan, son of a bitch. She said, oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Oh. But, yeah, I, I, on the whole, it, it's interesting. One of the things I just want to ask Camilla about very quickly, yes. when you get quotes from other people about the person you're interviewing, yes. would you put that quote to them in the interview? Because yes. I, once, I once had an interview done with me yeah. in which 
afterwards, when I read the interview, it sort of said, oh, well, on midweek, you know, she uh, never talks to guests beforehand. You know, one says she simply sits in silence for half an hour and does the crossword, which is an absolute lie. Not true. Partly because I don't do crosswords and partly because I put an incredible amount of work into the half hour before. Yes, yeah. And that, that silence was, as well. But it was a kind of... It was, <laughs> it was a flat lie yes. that somebody else had said, but it went into the interview. You, you wouldn't do... If, if somebody said that to you in your research about a person, you would put it to them, wouldn't you? Yes, maybe, you not just... always. It would depend whether I'd speak to people before or afterwards. Mm. I mean, I, d I couldn't say. Um, if somebody made a really interesting claim, um, I would probably... You'd go back to the person and say... Could go, could go back told. to the person, yeah. yes. Yeah. I think it's only fair to go back to the person on the whole. I don't know if it's yeah. very practical to Terry be honest Coleman, with you sometimes. Was, um... That's the problem. It, with, yeah. Sorry. Don't... With you, I mean, I, I would imagine you would take the call, but say I'm doing... Um, you know, yes, or whoever, <laughs> then, then it's very difficult to kind of go back. Um, and also, I'm quite bad at sort of putting, ringing round. I just tend to focus on the person itself. Yeah. But that does seem unfair to me. There's been a shift in that. I'm Terry Coleman, who's a um, newspaper interview for many, interviewed for many, many years, Guardian and then The Independent. He, he wrote a piece about this. He said that there should be no extraneous material in an interview mm. at all, unless you put it to the person because there was a fashion there was a particular interviewer who was doing it who would go and interview the person and then do it the other way around actually they would put the things the person had said to other people mm. who had known them and so it's a kind of post hoc assassination of the yeah. interviewee and he argued very strongly against that okay well it's um it's the witching hour now um but i just want one last question which is not who is the worst person you've interviewed because that's what everybody always says who's the nicest best person You've interviewed. Ooh. Um, I love to hurry you. Oh, God, the only person I can think of is Giles Brandreth, but I really don't want to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. He was Next. lovely. <laughs> well, you see, I, uh, ni nicest or would, would come under the thermostat school of producing for me because it, it may, is it about how nice they are? I would say it wasn't. I mean, I, the ones where. Um, the one I couldn't believe I was in the room was Clint, <coughs> was it Clint Eastwood, yeah. where you do actually think, and it's, <coughs> you know, you try not to, and you shouldn't as a journalist, but you do just think, God, that's Clint Eastwood. <laughs> and, um, but he also was really, really interesting in talking about his work and yeah. he was able to analyse it and he's clearly... Um, but it's, the, it, it's that moment where you think, this is someone who, in a hundred years, there will be biographies and documentaries about and here I am. Yeah, yeah. Libby? I fall in love on a regular basis about once a fortnight with, with somebody who comes on. Um, I mean, uh, Clarence B. Jones, you know, helped Martin Luther King write his, uh, write his speech and so on. The, 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 there are too many, too many small thrills like that, really, to enunciate one. But the best person I ever had in the hospitality room was little Jimmy Osmond. I recommend oh, him yes. unreservedly because he arrived, was... Americans totally open and lovely and said, hi everybody and he started pouring the tea and talking to all the other guests and saying and you what have you done you've written a book awesome <laughs> <laughs> and it made everybody feel great I've had well, him every on, week. on that uplifting note I'd like to thank our panel for a fantastic discussion I think we've all enjoyed it immensely I feel humbled to be on the same stage as these people uh, I'd like to thank you for coming and thank the BBC for hosting us thank you, thank you.